I'm really pleased to be joined today by Dr. Amy Or-Ewing. And Amy is uh, a friend. We've been friends for many years now. And yes. um, Amy is president of the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Uh, she is uh, um, someone who speaks around the world on the Christian faith and uh, is what's known as an apologist, someone who uh, defends uh, the Christian faith uh, from a rational point of view. And uh, she has uh, joined us today from Oxford, which is great to have you with us, Amy. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Toby. Lovely to see you. Wish I could be there in person, but this is this is the next best thing, isn't it? Oh, we wish you were here as well, but we're so glad you could join us today. And you're surrounded by books. You spend a lot of time reading books, I know. That's a very (laughs) impressive bookcase. Um, And uh, you also spend a lot of time writing books. And we've got quite, I think we've got most of your books in our household, but uh, two particular ones that I could find as I was walking, uh, going through my bookshelves uh, today. One of them is this one which is called but is it real answering 10 common objections to the christian faith uh there is a great book called why trust the bible which we recommend on alpha the week on uh, the bible which is great and also uh, this one is your most recent one amy which is called where is god in all the suffering which is um a very pertinent question to be asking at the moment but um amy just uh, tell us a little uh, you're, you're married frog you've got three boys uh, yeah. what's lot lockdown been like for you guys oh um yeah so we've got three boys who are twins who are 15 and I've got a 12 year old as well so lockdown has been um it's been a real sort of roller coaster let's be honest um it's been there have been great highs of lots more family time together usually I'm traveling a lot so um I haven't been on a plane for a year which feels just really strange but because my my work kind of takes me around and about so lots of, of highlights have been kind of time and presence with with family but it's also been quite hard I'm sure all the parents out there will sympathize with with their homeschooling challenges I think particular challenge for for 15 year olds being locked up with your parents and not able to get away from them they're going to need years of prayer ministry after that um so yeah all sorts of challenges and actually I've had um some health challenges as well so um in the course of the year um I, I needed to have tests for ovarian cancer um which was really hard it was actually inconclusive so I had a few months of of not knowing um which was 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 really really intense and and difficult for all of us as a family um praise God and thankfully I I am in the clear and found that out in October but um I think that was a real sort of shadow over the year for us as well um and I, I think maybe the pandemic has has kind of exacerbated the kinds of suffering that have perhaps already been there, the challenges that we're all facing. It feels like the dial has been turned up, I guess, um, through, through, through lockdown. So, yeah, the book has been really pertinent to that. Um, how, how could a loving God be real and this be the world that we experience and the kind of depth and um you know the profound experience of pain that all of us go through as human beings and it came out in September um and it it just has it's felt like a word that we've been living as well as 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 talking about I guess yeah 
And I suppose it's, I mean, we've passed 100,000 deaths in this country this week. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a very big topic for people. And we're so glad that yeah. you're able to address it. I should say that you're, you've got lots of connections with Bristol. Um, where your yeah. parents uh, live in Bristol. That's right. Yes. My mum and dad and my sister and brother-in-law and nephews as well. So, yeah, I love Bristol as a city and feel a real connection to it personally too. Yeah. Well, um, we're uh, in a moment. We're going to hand over. To, um, you recorded a, t- a talk for us a little bit earlier on this big question, which I think lots of people will be interested to hear what you what you've got to say. But also, you're going to join us uh, later on after the service at six thirty. We're so yes. glad about that as well for a live Q and A. Um, and so, we would love you to join us. All that the links will be in the chat. Uh, if you're watching on Church Online on that platform, you can go to the website uh, and you can join the Zoom. And you can be anonymous on the Zoom. Uh, you don't have to have your camera on uh, you can ask anonymous questions if you'd like to you can just listen to the questions and uh, amy is going to do her best to uh, to tackle those questions and we're so glad amy i mean you're you're often off you've spoken in the white house you've spoken in parliament you speak all around the world and so we're really grateful to have you here today so thank you oh, so thank much you. for being Not here with all. us today. really looking forward to it see you there later okay, see you there. <laughs> we're going to hand over right now to amy who's going to address this question which is uh, where is God in all the suffering? Hello, it's Amy Ewing here in Oxford and it's a real privilege and delight to join you today as we consider together um, the question of suffering and where God might be in the midst of this suffering world. In 2016, um, one of the most vibrant and dynamic people I've ever met, Nabil Qureshi, was diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer. He was 34, he stood over six feet tall, he was a person of enormous energy and huge capacity and stamina for teaching and international travel, engaging in conversation with the people who came to hear him speak. And he was doing that whilst also studying here at Oxford at the university here for his postgraduate degree. And he was also the father of a a toddler. Nabil was the best-selling author of the New York Times bestseller Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, in which he tells his story, amazing story of changing his mind from his birth religion of Islam and actually encountering Christ. And he was enormously fun and intellectually curious. And so when, as his friends and colleagues, we heard of his diagnosis, we just couldn't believe it. How could someone so alive, someone um, being so powerfully used by God, someone so young, have stage four stomach cancer? Three months before he died, um, I had lunch with him and we talked about all sorts of things. At that point, he was struggling with the physical pain of his illness. But more than that, the the realisation, the pain of the realisation that he was going to be most likely um, leaving behind his beloved wife, Michelle, and his um, precious daughter, Aya, that he wouldn't see her growing up. Well, today, as we consider the question, where is God um, in the suffering of the world, and particularly that question of physical illness, I want us to do that, not in the abstract, not just thinking about this as a sort of theoretical question, but bearing in mind that this question is real. We all know people who've who've died young, who've experienced um, the devastating loss of of a terminal diagnosis. 
So we're left with the question, why does nature go wrong and where is God when illness strikes? Surely a loving God would not allow um, this kind of suffering in the world and why would he allow a fervent follower of his in his 30s to die in this kind of way? Now, sometimes serious illness can bring about real doubts in the hearts of people who who love God fervently, let alone people who scarcely believe that God even exists. And a powerful example of this is actually found in John's Gospel in chapter 11, where one particular family who'd been close friends of Jesus had this exact experience of their faith being shaken by someone um, becoming ill and dying. Um, Jesus has a friend called Lazarus and when this friend Lazarus dies, Jesus actually weeps at the tomb of his friend. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But Lazarus also had two sisters and this family loved each other very dearly and deeply. So when Lazarus, their brother, dies of an illness, the sister, Mary in particular, is so upset and she's upset with Jesus for not coming soon enough to heal her brother. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have have died. In other words, the illness and death of her brother causes Mary to doubt God. She's asking, where were you when this happened, Jesus? And she's alleging, if you really loved us, you would have been here in such a way that this would not have happened. Now, when a similar thing happens to many of us, we lose a loved one or we receive a terminal diagnosis. Uh, uh, we're afflicted by an illness in this way, it's actually really natural to ask this question, God, if you were here, if you were real, this wouldn't be happening. So are you here and are you real? And I think the very fact that this question is in the Bible and it is directly posed to Jesus actually acknowledges what many of us experience. We will struggle to reconcile the reality of cancer chronic illness, impairment from an accident, the onset of a degenerative disease, and many more experiences of illness and pain. We're going to struggle to reconcile that with the existence and presence of a God who loves us. So if a God exists who is loving, why does our health go wrong? Why do we battle cancer, diabetes, coughs and colds, infections, coronavirus, other health niggles? And how does the Christian faith reconcile its claims of a loving God with the painful illness and death of people around whilst all the while claiming God loves them? So as you may know, the Bible actually begins with a description of a loving and intelligent creator as the instigator and the maker of a beautiful and good world. And as Genesis unfolds, the writer describes how the possibility of loving relationships between human beings and between human beings and God requires that a genuine capacity for decision-making exists. In other words, true love cannot be forced. God creates a beautiful, moral and ordered universe. 
and he creates human beings as those who bear his image within that universe and who have the capacity to love and to choose. But as human beings, we have decided to fracture that order by seeking not to love God, but instead to deny his authority over creation and to live as rulers ourselves. Genesis 3 describes this. God has made clear the consequences of that decision, that death and thorns and thistles and disease and disagreement and heartbreak and pain enter the world as a result of our exercise of moral choice. And as human beings now, we live, if you like, in the downstream of that original decision of the first humans in Genesis 3, in the broken world and um, uh, all the consequences that have followed from there. But we also contribute to that brokenness with our own decisions not to love others well and not to love God at all. So once our selfishness has a foot in the door in Genesis 3, the negative effects of that accelerate and increase. And we see that through the book of Genesis until the direct connection between a particular moral choice and the impact of negative moral behaviour upon the very fabric of life is all but lost. And so whoever we are, whatever the particular decisions we may or may not have made, whether good or bad, we are all all affected by this breakdown and by the disease and decay in our world. So according to the Bible, our general human experience of disease is actually unaffected by our specific moral behaviour. And it's even unaffected by our belief system. So a diagnosis of cancer is not a, a, a direct result of believing the wrong thing or of doing a particular thing wrong. It's a result of living in a fallen world. So whether we believe in God or not, every single one of us lives in that fallen world and we all experience the legacy of choices made by other human beings reinforced over multiple generations as well as our own cycles of dysfunction and selfishness. So the loving God who made a world in which love is possible did not choose to destroy or discard us, sort of hitting a reset button on creation. So our continued existence in a world of pain and suffering um, actually is explained by the Bible. It's not in contradiction to the Bible. But does that mean that God just doesn't care? that he's just left us. Not at all. The Bible repeatedly claims that God does care and that he does not ignore or abandon us. So let's think for a moment about physical suffering and disease. You see, I want to ask a bigger picture question for a moment. Whether we believe in God or not, all of us are affected by disease and death. But I want to ask the question, why do these things hurt so much? And what does what I believe about the origins of life and whether or not there is a God have to say about suffering and disease and death and why it matters to us all? Uh, my twins just turned 15 um, yesterday. But when they were born, um, I became friends with a woman whose son was 
born a few days before them. And those exhausting days and months of having newborn babies and looking after toddlers are sort of hazy memory in some ways. But this particular friend did all of that whilst also coping with a chronic health condition of her own. The day in and day out sort of grind of exhaustion that we all experience when we ha- if we have small children was exacerbated for her by the constant pain that she was in. And yet somehow she continued to care for her child. I don't know how she did it. She was one of the most patient people I've ever met. A couple of years ago, I injured my back and I was diagnosed with two herniated discs and a compressed nerve. I was housebound for five weeks. I was unable to drive. Um, I actually couldn't sleep because of the absolutely excruciating constant pain. And I often thought about my friend and I realised that I had had no idea with what she had coped with and with what her daily life experience had been, I began to realise that chronic illness, like other kinds of diagnosis, has a profound effect on us as people. Physical illness and wounds inflict something much deeper on a person and on their loved ones than just the brute fact of the torn flesh, the raised temperature, the immobility, or even the bruises and cuts. There's a deep effect of cumulative physical pain that somehow begins to seep into the core of who we are. But why is that? Why should physical frailty in our bodies hurt us at this almost transcendent level? Does our human experience of illness actually serve as a reminder and an indicator that to be human is to be more than a material, physical entity of molecules and atoms. A Hebrew poet writing 3,000 years ago put the sacred agony of illness into words that have comforted millions of people through the ages. He said this, Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me. I'm in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly, for my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. In my distress, I groan aloud. I'm reduced to skin and bones. That's Psalm 102. You see, lament over illness is given voice in the Bible. Disease and death hurt us at the level of our most essential being because there is a connection between the real me, who I actually am, and my physical body. Suffering from illness has a deeper meaning than just the mere physical experience of pain, and that is because our lives are created and are sacred in some way. We are more than just the material stuff of our bodies. In my family, this was brought home to me, um, especially powerfully through seeing my stepmother-in-law experience breast cancer. For any woman, um, receiving a diagnosis of breast cancer is very um, chilling. And given how widespread this disease is, most of us will know someone who has either died from this or um, 
being diagnosed with it. And obviously the location in the female body of this cancer seems to evoke a specific kind of dread for a woman. Fleur, my stepmother-in-law, was beautifully brave and resilient and funny and hospitable, even as cancer ravaged her body. And it wasn't just the physical pain of the illness that distressed her. It was the thought of the pain being inflicted on her daughters and her husband, who she was going to leave behind. The acute pain of loss and separation that was coming loomed larger even as the physical pain intensified. But there was also something almost sacred in that pain, the holding on to life even as death crept up on us. It seemed to all of us that God was actually truly and really present with us. One evening, together as a family in her bedroom, we shared Holy Communion, that symbolic meal of bread and wine symbolising the crucifixion of Jesus, the bread representing his body, the wine representing his blood, those physical symbols taken into our bodies, into our physical bodies, pointed us to a life beyond the grave. Pain is real. The pain and experience of injury and physical suffering are devastating, but I think they point us to the profound sacredness and value of life. They hurt so much because human pain is more than merely physical. Is it enough to face death and rage and rage against the dying of the light, as the poet put it? Or is there more to human existence? Is there more life in me beyond my body? Do illness and pain hurt this much because we as human beings are made in the image of God? We were made to live. I think that we were created for life both in and beyond our physical bodies here and now and it is Jesus Christ who uniquely makes sense of that. Where is God in our experiences of physical illness? Well, if pain is the cost of love, our physical pain and illness is a consequence of living in this world where choices are made and love is possible. But in that darkest agony of physical pain, God has not left us to suffer alone. In fact, This question has caused Christians to agonise and to pray and to rage against God, but it's also caused us to care and to show love um, to others. Since the very first days of the early church, Christians in every generation have been inspired to work with the dying. In the 1990s, I got to visit Mother Teresa's home for the dying. She was known for her work in Calcutta in India for caring for the destitute and being determined that every person be given a dignified death. It was a truly moving experience um, to visit those sisters and to see how they poured the love of Christ out in that kind of context. But I think we're also left with the question, where does healing fit into all of this? Where is God in this suffering world? And Does he actually heal today? 
in Matthew um, chapter 8, which is um, a reading for today, verses 1 to 13, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And the man says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. And then it goes on that there's a centurion's servant and he's ill. And then the centurion says to Jesus, say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, go, it will be done just as he believed it would. Two accounts in just 13 verses of Matthew's gospel of astonishing, miraculous, physical healings. So Christians have wrestled with this dilemma. Does God heal? And if he can, then why wouldn't he always do it? If he doesn't heal, does that mean that he doesn't really exist? Or um, does it mean that he isn't really loving? There's a kind of theological context to this question. So we think about this suffering world and whether a loving God exists. And then we wonder, why does he heal some people and not others? So there seems in the New Testament to be a tension with regard, re, regard to God's miraculous actions. Um, and there's this term, now and not yet. You see, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It was a phrase that he used to explain um, that he'd come into this world to bring God's kingdom, to demonstrate the goodness and the, good, the, the truth and the reality of God on earth. That's what the kingdom kingdom really means. And those who place themselves under God's loving rule begin to experience life in the kingdom, free from sin, free from suffering, free from oppression, free from poverty, pain and death. That's what the kingdom looks like. And Jesus demonstrates this truth in the miracles that he performed, healing the sick, casting out demons and raising the dead. And Jesus speaks about the kingdom as having come in his person. He says the kingdom of God is within you. And this means something practical and physical. The blind receive sight. Good news is proclaimed to the poor. He speaks about the kingdom being present and he speaks about the kingdom being something as yet to come. Jesus claimed this is something that will fully come when he returns. There will be a final judgment. There will be a new heaven and a new earth when all suffering will end and tears will be wiped from our eyes. So the miraculous interventions and healings that Jesus performs back then in the Gospels and still today demonstrate that he is God's chosen king bringing this kingdom the centurion's servant being healed, the man being healed of leprosy, the experiences of healing that you and I have seen in our lives today are signs pointing us toward the certainty of that future reality of the kingdom. It is now and it is coming. Now, a miracle of healing is only a miracle if it's unusual. In the Bible, the usual laws of nature hold. People die. Um, people experience the law of gravity. Miracles are seen and described as unusual interventions, signs pointing beyond themselves to something other, something greater, helping us realise that a God actually exists and he's intervening now to show us what his kingdom is like. 
In some senses, we can recognize a miracle and its message precisely because it is not ordinary. Miracles in the Bible are not sort of deserved badges of God's special favoritism for an individual who is healed or helped. And they're not rewards for good behaviour. They are visible signs of grace and goodness, signs of hope by which everyone who sees them can conclude that the king of this kingdom that is coming is real and that the future bliss that Jesus spoke of is really going to happen. 14 years ago, um, I visited a member of my um, congregation who was in hospital dying of an aggressive cancer. He was a senior government official. He was doing amazing work. He had a family. He had a strong Christian faith and everyone in our church was devastated at his illness. We longed for God to heal him and um, we felt quite hopeless really in the face of his terminal diagnosis. But as my husband and I went into that hosp hospital room to pray, pray for him. He said to us, a miracle is God's to give, not mine to demand. This humble, godly man actually did experience a, a, an amazing miracle against every miracle pre medical prediction. Um, he had further years given to him to work, but then he did die a few years later peacefully with his family around him. I found his um, attitude towards a miracle of healing to be profoundly moving. In my pain, in my illness, does God care? In contrast to other belief systems, Christian faith says yes. We do not worship a God who has a sort of law of karma, you get what you deserve. We worship a God who does exist and who does care. We're not at the whim of karma. We're not at the whim of a malevolent God um, in a far distant uh, sort of plane looking at us and kind of pulling the strings in a, in a fatalistic way. We encounter a loving God who's actually prepared to enter human history in Jesus and to suffer with us and for us. His love for us in our suffering is knowable and tangible because he has suffered. The famous author, um, she wrote detective fiction and, and other books. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis. Dorothy L. Sayers wrote this. She said, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he's kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it well worthwhile. In Jesus, God has experienced pain for our sake. He considered it worth the cost. 
And so in some sense, our pain as human beings, our experience of suffering and illness is dignified by his willingness to step into it. Whatever else our pain may entail, we are not cosmically alone in it. And our pain is not futile or banal or meaningless. If we open ourselves to the possibility of a living, loving, suffering God, we can encounter him even in the midst of our pain. And the same Jesus who healed the leper and the centurion's servant heals today as a sign of the truth that that coming kingdom is real. The centurion just came to Jesus asking him for help. And I think that's something that we can do right now. Trusting him, coming to him for help in the midst of our pain and suffering. So why don't we do that right now as we pray? I'm going to pray for us. And so wherever you are, why don't you just open your heart to God and invite him, the God who was prepared to suffer, the God who made this world to be a world within which love is possible, who understands our brokenness, who understands our experiences of illness and invite him into those, those experiences. So God, we open our hearts to you right now. I want to pray for anyone um, watching this who's struggling with illness, with suffering. And just like that centurion came to you, Lord Jesus, and asked you for help, that's what we do today. We ask for your help and your healing. We ask for your help and your presence and your comfort to meet us in this suffering world. In your name, amen. Amen.